Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Thanks for that. Uh, you guys at home, are you like me when you listen to some of those headlines? Do you like want to shout at your TV set? Over a thousand people crossing the channel in one day alone. Oh, I'd love to know what you say to your TV screen when you hear that. It is just absolutely appalling now, isn't it? And what's uh, even more appalling is the fact that we've got pretty much no government uh, doing anything about it at the moment because we've got this ridiculous uh, extended leadership uh, contest going on instead. You tell me all your thoughts on that. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, uh, my two-man panel, and I can say two-man panel because I don't work for Argos. Did you see what they did? Um, you know, they have like a two-man delivery Argos, apparently, that is offensive. It's outdated, insensitive language. They've changed it now to two-person delivery. How ridiculous is that? So if you don't mind, I'm going to stick with the old-fashioned view. My two-man panel, Ali Mirage, the founder of the Contrarian Prize and the columnist at the article and the author, James Bloodworth. Uh, are you offended that I say two-man panel? No. Are you? No, I identify as a man, so thank you. <laughs> Do you? You yes. identify as a man? Do you identify as a man? Yes. I, I, I find this whole identifying notion absolutely absurd. I think it's bonkers that people can just identify as this and identify as that. The world, I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, has gone mad. Anyway, uh, I digress, because I'm not supposed to be uh, talking about Argos or men or self-identity or anything. Uh, get in touch with me uh, tonight. Tell me your views. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email address. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes now. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I need more money, I need a pay rise, have you been on strike? Are you contemplating going on strike? Uh, pretty much everyone's going on strike at the moment, aren't they? Uh, are you one of them? What pay rise would be acceptable to you? Well, if you are the boss of a FTSE 100 company, you might have found yourself getting almost a 40% pay rise in the last year. So good news for them. Uh, it means the bosses though in the top boardrooms have been paid over 100 times the rate of the take-home pay of the average worker. Now, uh, I've got to say, there's been a massive reaction to this uh, everywhere, really, all over the press, the internet. People, uh, many people anyway, are livid. They're furious. They're saying this is capitalism gone mad. Uh, they want pay caps. Uh, they want workers on boards. They want big shake-ups of the whole uh, economic system. Capitalism uh, is broken, they say. What do you say, James? Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I mean, I think if you have... Uh, we, at the moment, lots and lots of people are struggling. The government is calling for pay restraint and saying that people cannot have, always have pay rises because it will be inflationary. Then at the same time, you have CEOs announcing, you know, bumper profits and, and bumper bonuses for themselves. I think, you know, I'm not sure you can cap the top level of pay. It's about ratios within companies. So, for example, McDonald's, the CEO of McDonald's earns almost 2,000 times as much as the average 
McDonald's worker. And if you're one of those workers, that's 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 kind of that's going to great if you if you're struggling with the cost of living. And I think you don't have to be an anti-capitalist to see measures like workers on boards as something that could be done to redress that. I mean, Theresa May, the the former Tory leader, she was proposing originally uh, for for more workers' representation on boards because then you can actually have you know if profits go up at the company, everyone at the company should benefit that. It's not it's not to say there shouldn't be profits made and, and it's somehow bad if profit goes up, but some of that has to be shared out with the workers and, and some of these companies do that and some of them don't. Uh, there is much I could say in response to that, but to my left, I've got a money man. Look at him. Well, you can't really see, actually. I've got... Uh, you can see pots and pans in front of you, but I can see a dapper man, a dapper suit, uh, a, capitalist, a capitalist, if I ever did see one, Ali Mirage. What do you uh, say to all that? Well, firstly, I have to always raise the sartorial standard when I'm on your show, uh, Michelle, because you set this, the bar so high. Um, look, I am a capitalist in the sense that I do believe in the profit motive and I don't believe that we should be nationalising everything. However, the capitalist system is not working for everyone and hasn't been working for quite a long time now. You look at real wages. Real wages have been falling in this country for the last decade, well over a decade. And there's a sense at the moment that people were prepared to put up with that when inflation was 2% or below. But when you've got inflation now going to double digits, now we're hearing that it could even go up to as high as 18%. That is not sustainable for people. And there's in, in Britain, we do have this sense of fair play. And that sense is being eroded. Look, I don't believe that pay caps should be introduced by the government, but companies and remuneration committees should realise that if they don't take action on this and are not perceived to be doing the right thing, the revolution's coming. I mean, it really is coming. And the what fact... Is, what of, does that mean? Well, the, well, you've seen strikes all over the place. You've even seen criminal barristers strike, for Pete's sake. I mean, this is a, a serious situation right now. People are not going to put up with this. We should actually have a situation where, in a similar way to we had this conversation around the environment, I mean, 25 years ago, people who were uh, from the Green Lobby were being ridiculed as sort of like uh, sandal-wearing tree-huggers. Now the whole conversation's moved. In a similar way, we need to have a conversation around remuneration and pay. And yes, I'm a capitalist. Yes, I believe that people should work hard and get a fair deal. But if you're having massive multiples of remuneration different from CEOs to workers, that's a problem. You look at something in somewhere like the Netherlands, for example. The whole social conversation around pay is completely different, right? You would not have the sort of multiples that we see here. We need to have the same conversation around, around pay, around remuneration, with a lot of media pressure on CEOs that we do on the environment. I think that's the way to move this. And also shaming people. You see, the problem, half the problem also is that you have remuneration committees of FTSE 100 companies and non-execs. There is a cosy little club. They all go in each other's boards. They're all sitting on each other's remuneration committees. It's like a closed shop. And you've got to be in a situation now where uh, you cannot keep protecting the interests of just the people at the very top. Other people have to be brought along with it as well. See, what I've got to say is I find what's going on quite interesting because you two, politically on paper, you're probably quite different to one another on different sides of the spectrum. But there is something interesting going on in society at the moment, which is issues are now crossing that political divide, aren't they? So, you know, you're saying that traditionally one would be a capitalist. I think traditionally you would say that you're not a capitalist. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a social democrat, but I think both of us are democrats and both of us want to preserve a system um, which is more immune to extremes. So, I mean, if you don't deal with things like this... So, I mean, during the 20th century, the thing that saved capitalism in the West was, was partly the welfare state. Um, we, we, we kind of... We, we acknowledge, both of us, I think, that if you let these kind of extremes... extreme gaps 
gaps in wealth, for example, just, just carry on as they are, that undermines capitalism, that undermines democracy, and then you do have these extremes flourishing, and I think neither of us do want that. But where, talk me through this correlation about the, the ratios, why you think that's so important, because you just said then, you know, you've got someone uh, at the lower end of McDonald's uh, versus the CEO of McDonald's, and there's whatever you just said, a 2,000... Yes, uh, it's, it's almost 2,000 times more. But then the, the flip side to that, do you see what I did there? Flip side, flipping burgers. <laughs> yes, you get it? No? Okay, anyway. Uh, right, so the flip side to what I'm saying is that somebody who wants to work in McDonald's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I imagine it's pretty pressured. I've seen those alarms, I've seen those buzzers, all the rest of it. It's quite a pressured job, no doubt. But the skill level required to, um, I don't know, put the chips in a fryer is very different to the skill level required to be the CEO strategically managing mm -hmm. and growing those businesses. Sure. So you are going to have a massive, massive margin between the two. But the problem is at the moment you have people who are working all the hours God sends at the bottom who are working very hard but still their wages are not covering the basic cost of living and yet at the same time you see CEOs, often of companies which aren't doing a good job, say the water industry for example, hmm. receiving massive remuneration and that just seems from most people's perspective I would say, whether on left or right, there's something morally wrong about that. It's not, it's not about being anti-capitalist, it's about having a capitalism that works effectively and rewards people for hard work. Where does this ratio fit in? What are you comfortable with? What, like, what is the correlation with this ratio? That's the bit, I guess. Let, let Ali, uh, well, 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 actually, just on that point, uh, there is no perfect answer to the ratio, but it's a part of a conversation that we should have in society. We should well, we're be having, having it, so tell yeah, me exactly. what... Exactly. So that's I don't, have a number, I don't have a number right now, but I do think that people should have this conversation openly. I also think that we are, you know, we're talking about being in a free market and the best talent is rewarded and attracted. But to James's point... You can't be having a situation where there are rewards for failure. I mean, that, that is not the system that works. The whole entire... Well, you've just told me that profits in the FTSE surged. So they're, they're not being rewarded but some of that's failure. from commodity prices. It's not from them doing necessarily a particularly great job, for example, in, in the energy industry, for example. In, I mean, the water industry. There's, the water industry's been massively fined for environmental... Well, not massively fined, not fined enough for environmental catastrophes over the, recent dec over the last decade. And yet you still have... CEOs taking home massive paychecks when the water system is, you know, not functioning very well. Raw sewage being pumped into the waterways, for example. Yeah, but you see, the, the issue is, like, the FTSE 100 uh, chief execs, for example, the highest paid, I think, was 16.9 million. They're not comparing themselves to the other FTSE 100 chief execs. They're comparing themselves to other CEOs around the world, like, including the head of Alphabet, who's getting 284 million in stock options, right? So you've got this sort of Davos elite that's going around, comparing itself to each other, losing more and more touch with the reality and with their workers. And this is going to catch up at some point. I mean, I thought it would catch up anyway, but when you've got a situation where you've got double-digit inflation, interest rates are going to be heading up um, to, a, to a level that we are not used to. We've been used to for the last decade, low to minimal interest rates, right? That's all going up. Cost of living issues all over the place. People are struggling. This is going to come to a head. And it is. You're seeing it all over the place now. Social unrest... I hope we don't get there. But we're already having strike action writ large with the RMT. I mean, the thing that surprised me was that if you look at the public perception of strike action, it's actually not negative at all. People understand where people are coming from. They don't necessarily, including myself, want to see inflationary pay rises, but they understand the sympathy and empathy that they have with these people who are struggling to make Yeah, but hang on, though, because uh, one of the things with the strike action at the moment is if this level of strike action had occurred, I don't know, say, three years ago, 
People would be massively, massively impacted. Mm -hmm. What's actually happened is that society has reorganised itself. So we went through a period of potentially... It was around two years, I think it was, there or thereabouts, of a lot of people, not all people I know, a lot of people uh, had to make changes to work remotely. So what's happened now, a lot of people, and again, not everybody I know, a lot of people, they're not affected by these strikes anymore now. Because uh, when whoever it is, the RMT or whatever, say, right, we're going to close down the train lines, people actually say, brilliant, I've got another day working from home. They're actually rubbing their hands, they're saving their train fare, they don't really care because they can now work from home. So when you say a lot of people support the strikes, I would say, actually, it's because a lot of people are no longer affected by them. Well, maybe on the transport you might have a point, uh, Michelle, to a degree, and I agree, that there are people working from home. But look, there are, there are uh, port workers in Felixstowe striking at the moment, right? So the criminal barristers are striking. So it is going to affect uh, all areas of life right now. And the situation is... But do you that... think people are just becoming chances? Are they going, hang on, look, he's striking, they're striking, he wants this, they want that, well, let's have a go? Well, I mean, of course you would have a go if, you, if your inflation rate's at 10% and rising... And your, and your real income has been falling for the last decade anyway, you'd probably want to have a go, and it's perfectly understandable. Look, the fundamental issue here, and I've raised this before, Michelle, when we've discussed this in the past, is the cost really is linked to the war in Ukraine. There's no, there's no sign of that war ending anytime soon. I mean, you've just had another situation here where one of Putin's henchmen's daughter's just been blown up, right? So this is not going in any sort of meaningful way to be ending anytime soon. You've had the... The, the Russian ambassador to the UN saying that peace talks were on the table, now they're completely off the table. So this could last months, if not years. In that situation, this is not going to get any better, and this is putting the whole system under severe pressure that was already building, but it's a bit like the Brexit referendum. You know, you had this, this sense in the system was not working properly, and it was building to a, a climax. And again, you're finding that here. I don't think these issues are born on the back of just cost of living. They've been brewing for a while, but there's always an inflection point, and I think we're at it now. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk briefly about nationalisation then. We're saying that capitalism is broken. What is nationalisation the answer? Um, I think there's, there's an old saying that I think it's don't privatise trains, don't nationalise sandwiches. So I think if there's a natural monopoly like water, trains, I think there's a case for nationalisation. But I absolutely don't think that the other areas of the economy should, should be nationalised. So what about water? I mean, a lot of people are getting in touch as we speak. I can see my email. A lot of people are very unhappy about what's been going on uh, with the water at the moment. There's been lots of reports over the weekend about dumping uh, waste and all the rest of it. Water, would you be in favour of that? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be in, I mean, there was a paper from, I think it was Goldsmiths University. I wrote about this last year and it, it calculated we'd have saved us billions of pounds as a country if, it had, if that had stayed nationalised. I mean, I, th I don't think... I think looking at industries like British Rail or the old waterways and saying it would be just like that now, no, I don't think that's true because technology has advanced. But I think at the moment, I don't think it's justifiable to have CEOs taking home bumper, bumper bonuses when you have, you know, water leaking out onto the street. Just a few weeks when I left this show, I went home and there was water leaking out on the street all, all, all night after that. And yet you have CEOs being rewarded for failure. But that, and that's what annoys me, actually, when it comes to um, water companies at the moment with their little adverts and all the rest of it, telling people how to be responsible. I saw one the other day, I can't remember which company it was, water company. They've got this little paddling pool or something with this dog in it and they were saying oh you know this is why we all need to be responsible with water so that we can all have a drink it was something like that don't quote me on that because I might have mixed my words up and I looked at it and I thought don't tell me 
to be responsible with my water when you lot, you are literally leaking billions of litres per day. So no, actually, I'm not going to uh, only have half a cup of tea instead of a full cup of tea when you lot can't actually sort out your own affairs. It annoyed me, Ali, so it did. Mm -hmm. Well, look, uh, Michelle, I've always been uh, economic in my use of water, partly because I don't have any hair, so it doesn't take me very long uh, to shower in the morning. Uh, which is a you know a, a, a decent sort of outcome uh, in terms of water conservation. I do think we need to be sensible about water usage, but you're right to point out that 24 it's billion It's not my litres... job to be sensible with my shower when they can't be bothered to be sensible with their own well, pipes. Well, look, you've got a realistic position here where 120,000 miles of Victorian pipe work need to be replaced in this country, and that requires massive capital investment. I'm not excusing everything that the water companies have done. There has been some mismanagement. There's also been some lack of transparency. And the situation we've got now is far from ideal. But the other thing about nationalisation is, if you want to nationalise, it requires masses of investment, like billions of investment into this. And the government's already in 100% debt to GDP ratio right now. OK, it's not as high as um, uh, all countries in the G7. Japan has got 250%. Uh, debt-to-GDP ratio, but we don't want to be going there. So you need private companies to come in and invest in this uh, and earn a decent regulated return, which is what happens right now. You need that. But the problem is that the regulator has to hold these companies to account to fix the leaks, and that requires massive investment and also increases in our bills, ultimately. That's what it's going to cost. So I'm going to go to a break, but before I do, then I'm just going to ask you both the same question and tell me as well at home your thoughts. What pay rise do you think people should be getting at the moment, percentage-wise? I mean, workers, not CEOs, workers. I mean, ideally, infl to match inflation, but it depends. I, I said, but inflation's depends. going. I'd say for the lowest-paid workers, I think you can you can use benefits to to top up what the lowest-paid workers' pay to. So just give me so a figure. So can survive. Just give me a rough figure. What do you reckon? How much? Well, inf inflation. What's inflation going to hit? Fifteen percent next year. So I would say fifteen percent pay rise. Then off the top of my head. So you do. I don't think that's realistic. So you but do. I, I couldn't put a. So you do inflation percentage is, on it right now. Yeah. So inflation is now ten percent. So you're saying fifteen. So you're gonna you're gonna half that and give it again. You're going to do inflation plus an extra half, so you're going to do... No, I mean, 15... infl match inflation, pay rises to match inflation. Well, every, so then every single month you're going to give more pay rises? Well, I'd hope we, I would hope we'd get to grips with inflation. But so we're not going wasn't... to get to grips with inflation, as Ali's just been saying. We've got this policy now But you have to, su you have to support people. War in I think Ukraine. you have to support the lowest paid. I'm not saying everyone should get an inflation matching pay rise, but you have to support the lowest paid, I think. Otherwise, you're going you're to have social unrest. Ali Mirage, what pay rise should people be getting? Well, I'd like to tackle it a different way because you've got public and private sector workers, so it's very difficult to give an across-the-board thing. Just but give me a figure. But we should be increasing corporation tax, which is something that Liz Truss, as she becomes Prime Minister, is going to reverse. You I think mean, we should increase it? Of course we should. We have to. I mean, I, look, I don't like paying any more tax than I have to, nor do I want uh, corporation tax to go up in this country. I, I, I'm, I'm a centre-right capitalist guy, but I recognise we just spent 400 billion on COVID. Where's all this money coming from? I do not believe it's morally right to, to mortgage the futures of our children and grandchildren to pay for all this expenditure. I mean, it's just not right. Well, there you go. You guys tell me, what do you think to all that at home? Uh, I can see the emails flying in, so I'll have some of your feedback in just a couple of minutes. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, Ali Mirage, the founder of the Contrarian Prize and the columnist at The Article, and the author, James Bloodworth. Um, you guys, I've been asking you, what do you think? Lots of people, actually, are in favour of things like the water companies um, being nationalised. There is a lot of 
Uh, anger in terms of uh, what many people call the fat cats, what they are currently earning in particular when you do, to your point, James, when you do compare it to uh, the average worker, I guess. Uh, Keith says, Michelle, we don't even have genuine capitalism uh, in this country. We have crony corporatist capitalism. Um, lots of people are emailing in as well about the world uh, economic agenda, their great reset uh, by 2030. We will earn nothing and be happy. Uh, many people have that uh, as their train of thought at the moment, I've got to say. Uh, Mark says, what about all the football players then? Some of them are on half, uh, sorry, £500,000 a week. Uh, why don't we look at capping their wages? What about sports stars? What about actors? And on it goes. Uh, Dan says that leaders should be paid for leadership. Not Let's not get into workers co-earning businesses and then having a say in their own wages. He says that would not end well at all. Uh, let me know your thoughts, Simon says. Michelle, you are wrong. Capitalism absolutely should be dead. There you go. Well, that told me. Uh, right then, let's talk about the police, shall we? In your mind, what do you think the purpose of them uh, is? In my mind, it's very clear. You're just supposed to deter uh, criminals. And when you find criminals, you're supposed to catch them and punish them. I'll tell you what I think you're not supposed to be doing, and that is the Macarena. I mean, I don't mind the Macarena, as I said earlier. got nothing against it, quite frankly. I probably busted it out a few times on a dance floor uh, in my own spare time. But a police officer, when you're dressed in your official get-up and you're at work, you shouldn't be doing it. Why am I talking about this? Well, Lincolnshire Police, um, they themselves have been bursting uh, about their own Macarena performance. So this is a tweet. Um, when I first saw it, I've got to say, I thought to myself, maybe this is just being filmed by a random passerby or something, I don't know. Anyway, the tweet itself was shared uh, by the Lincolnshire Police. They seemed quite proud of it in a nutshell. They were saying uh, that they were building community relations. I say, how ridiculous. Ali Mirage, where are you on it? I think it's absolutely outrageous, quite frankly. I mean, uh, Boston in Lincolnshire has uh, got one of the highest crime rates in the country. Mm, it has. Uh, it's uh, got a, a crime rate of about 100 uh, crimes per 1,000 people, very, very high. And you've got a situation here where, if you look at the police more generally, I think there's also a problem in terms of public confidence in the police. I understand that police numbers went down, but that's only half the story. You've got a situation now where 99% of rapes are going uh, unpunished. You've got 6% of robberies and 4% of thefts only resulting in a charge. And police not bothering and not having the resources uh, to, go and, to go and investigate crime. I mean, they should spend less time doing this. They should spend less time uh, investigating uh, non-crime hate incidents, which is another complete and utter fiasco, and focus, like the Chief Inspector of Constabulary is saying, on solving proper crimes. That's what they should be doing. I'm all in favour of the police and the community being two halves of the same walnut. I get it completely. Of course they should. But doing the Macarena when you're on duty, in your uniform... I mean, this is not... You're not at a nightclub here. You're, you're, you're meant to be doing your job. And in such a high-crime area, there's plenty of crime to solve. So very disappointing, wide of the mark, and, I'm, and I think it's completely the wrong thing to do. I do not think it will instil public confidence in the police, which I find sad. James Bloodworth? Yeah, I mean, I, I find this quite cringeworthy when I saw it on, when I saw it on Twitter. Um, I do think, though, that we shouldn't make too much of this specific clip because I think this isn't why the police are not investigating many crimes. It's, they're not investigating many crimes because their budgets have been cut by 17%. 
since 2000. Police numbers have been cut by 17% since 2010, and budgets have been mass massively cut. They're massively under-resourced. They don't have the resources to be investigating lots of crimes, so they're not doing that anymore. I, I reported something to the police last year. I was very disappointed with the conclusion of that. They didn't seem to be... Uh, well, not didn't seem to be interested in it. They didn't seem to have the time to actually investigate it. Um, and I think a lot, that's lots of people's experience at the moment, particularly with things like burglaries. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is cringeworthy, embarrassing. And I think that the police should have to be very careful not to be seen as political. I mean, I think pride is quite a politicised uh, movement now around the trans issues and, and whatnot. I think a gay rights march, I think, I think that's fine. But I think the, the pride stuff has been, become more politicised now. I think that's slightly different. Um, but I think the main reason that the police are not investigating crime is, is as I said, cuts to, the, to police budgets. I don't think it's, I don't think it's because of videos like this. But to me, the two things um, are different. So yes, we can all agree actually that we need more police um, out on the beat. Although Peter Hitchens was on here the other day saying that there's never but been David, such David thing. David Cameron and George Osborne said you didn't need that. You didn't need visible police because technology now you could do things more. It was, it was just nonsense. But they said when they cut the police in, two, in the 2010s, they said that. People didn't really. People thought they wanted to see bobbies on the beat, but that wasn't really the most effective way to police. Well, I think people, I think we should go back to having more police on the beat because I think that that was actually quite effective at reassuring people. Yeah, but then so then this is the key point for me because you say focusing on this stuff isn't more where we should be. More police does matter. But actually. Um, the, the reason that I'm focusing on this, and I always go on as well, by the way, about the example in Hull a few years ago, I think I've got some pictures of that. Uh, Hull Fair, it's like a massive deal uh, locally. Anyway, the police there put pictures of themselves up riding the dodgems and stuff. And why I think this matters, and I think it's crucial actually, is because no matter how many police you've got on the beat, whether it's one, two or ten or ten, you know, whatever, it's irrelevant. To me, it's about the attitude towards the police. And you, maybe I'm a little bit old-fashioned, but I believe that the police are supposed to be like, um, yeah. not above you, I don't, mean like, I don't mean like a hierarchy, but to me, the police, you're supposed to look at them, you're supposed to respect them, you're supposed mm. to see them as authority. Yeah. If they tell you to pack Respected it in, Respected rather than liked, I do agree in. with that. Yeah, I do agree with that. They don't inculcate respect anymore, they don't command respect. Exactly, uh, Michelle, I'm with you completely on this. I mean, I remember getting involved in a situation, a police officer standing right there, there was some impertinent youth blocking a road. Uh, I'd call the police to sort out this issue. These uh, youths were being very aggressive and uh, totally out of order. I said to the police, are you going to do anything, do anything to these uh, uh, people? And he says, well, you can't, we, can't, we can't arrest them for being, for being rude or impertinent. And I thought, well, yeah, probably you're right. But then given the fact that you've got to this position yourselves of never enforcing anything... There's a total breakdown of respect in the society. This is what we're seeing here. The police are not commanding respect and people aren't giving people, uh, police respect. So you've got this self-perpetuating problem now that's uh, developed. I completely agree. I, I, I do think it's worth mentioning the police are in a slightly difficult position in that they do have to do outreach to groups that have historically been marginalised so that those communities do feel confident in coming, coming forward to the police to report their own crimes, whether it's ethnic minority communities or the LGBT community, for example. So I do understand that, but I just think this is a very cringeworthy way to do it. And I also think you, they have to stay an institution that's respected and, and it's not just all about being liked and being popular. But I, I mean, I get what you're saying and that's what uh, many police chiefs would say. They'll say, I'm dancing the mac Macarena as part of community relations. I say that's silly though. I don't think that but, necessarily is the way to do it. But I think there is, there is, I do agree that there has to be outreach and you have to go into these communities so that people in those communities feel that they can trust the police because historically it's been more difficult for those groups sometimes to report things to the police because they weren't taken seriously. Well, the, the best way of gaining trust would be to actually solve, solve crimes. some crimes, <laughs> yeah. right? I agree. And focus on that. 
and particularly knife crime. I mean, you just saw this um, issue now with uh, uh, Tyson Fury's uh, cousin uh, that happened. I mean, that happens every day on the streets, it does. right? Particularly in East London, where I live. I mean, there's like spates of um, gang violence and uh, uh, drug-related crime all over the place, right? So if the police want to gain the confidence of the community, focus on solving crime. Yes, we do understand that there are limited resources. My own car got stolen. Um, uh, a year and a half ago now, and I actually had... I got a ticket because the people who stole my car actually got a ticket on the way. I said to, I said to the police, we've got CCTV here where they got this ticket. Can you investigate? No, we don't have the resources. Please go and look at all the CCTV footage yourself. Com compile a, a sort of a package and then we'll have a look. I mean, you know, come on. I just don't agree. I just, I, yeah. do, I just do not agree that you need to, as the police, you shouldn't be getting yourself involved in whatever it is that you're supposed to be there... Managing. Agreed. So, for example, I do not want to see the police taking the knee. I think that's outrageous. I think it's deeply politicised and I think it's wrong. They shouldn't be doing it. I don't want to see you dancing. Um, I don't want to see you, I don't know, wearing your, your flags, your pride Football flags shirts. or whatever it is. I, I don't want it. I just want you to be there to assert some authority and to... Uh, just have a bit of decency. A lot of people, you say communities, some communities don't like the police or don't trust the police. Well, that's probably because a lot of the police in various uh, occasions have acted in a way that they shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, I, I don't, don't think do this that. solves the problem. Yeah, I, I think, don't think this solves the problem. I think it's a gimmick, it looks silly and it makes them kind of look like a, laugh, a bit of a laughing stock, to be honest. Um, yeah, Dal says, whilst the police are busy partying, they don't have their eyes on a bigger picture, which is they're supposed to be keeping a lookout for criminals. Uh, Lachlan agrees with me, says, completely correct, uh, the police are being ridiculous. Um, Keith says, how are they going to watch what's going on if they're busy dancing? Roger says, the police are in danger of losing uh, public confidence. This is exactly the point. So, for me, it's not necessarily even about the dancing. It's about you're supposed to be an authority to me, a police person, a policeman, whatever you want to call them these days. They're supposed to be a, a figure of authority. Mm. When you're sitting there dancing and then you're rocking up to my crime scene in your clown car with all your rainbows on it and stuff like that, I don't respect you. I agree. I don't. And um, if you want to... If you want to get people's respect, you need to act in a way that is uh, encouraging of that. But maybe I'm just being a little bit harsh. You tell me, Nigel has been in touch saying the biggest crime he feels is that the police have spent time learning uh, the dance moves to the Macarena. Nigel, I would say everyone. No, everyone knows the Macarena dance move, surely. Uh, you two know it, don't you? Probably through osmosis, I've just seen it done so many times over the yeah, years. Everybody yeah, everybody knows like it. I would probably know it. Everyone knows it. I think, I think the police need to be taking some uh, lessons in dancing for the Finnish Prime Minister, who is a very good mover. Yes, she's got some, yeah, she's got some moves, hasn't she, Joss? Lots of you guys have been getting in touch about the uh, police dancing, we've just said. Uh, William, Bill, says, as a retired police officer, this video is an embarrassment. The officers involved and the senior officer who authorised this should be sacked. Uh, Lorna says, you've just said, Michelle, that everybody knows the Macarena. I've never even heard of it until today. Really? You've never even heard of the Macarena? Wow, you've not lived. What can I say? You've I was going to say, lived. it hasn't missed much. It's not that great. <laughs> it's a good, yeah, but it's one of those old... It's like that, what other song do I like? That oops, upside your head. That's totally different. Look, if anyone That's danced a Macarena at one of my DJ nights, I would uh, oh, yes, have them evicted DJ. from the dance floor. I mean... I yeah. forgot you was a DJ. Exactly. I mean, we wouldn't have that going down. Wouldn't, wouldn't you use it as a, uh, as a floor filler, though? No. 
<laughs> no, definitely not. It's not, yeah, no. All right, well, he's too cool for school. Is our Ali Mirage. No Macarena floor filling for him. Uh, what about Oops Upside Your Head? Yes. That's no? all right. That's, that's, that's a very been good better. One. That's better. I've, not, I've not done that for ages, that, done, that song, that dance. Anyway, I won't do it now. Right, uh, let's talk about more serious matters, shall we? Uh, the former Children's Commissioner. Have you seen this story, by the way? Some uh, schools are apparently evaluating moving to a three or four day week, they're saying. Uh, it's because of things like rising energy costs, uh, you know, salary rises for teachers, etc. So now the former Children's Commissioner is saying that this should all be a red flag. She says education bosses are forgetting about the disastrous effects of the pandemic lockdowns on children. Uh, you know, when we talk about three, four-day uh, school weeks, obviously that kicks into uh, touch some of the things like online learning, etc., uh, etc. Et and it worries me, uh, James Bloodworth, so it does, because... I feel a little bit post-COVID, things like restrictions, closing things down, stopping things, that's become a first resort instead of a last resort. All of this, oh, yeah, don't worry about school, they can just do it on the computer and do distance learning, that should be, like, an absolute, absolute exception, not like a, a first contingency plan or something. Where do you stand on it all? I, I would agree. I think during the first lockdown, for example, when schools closed, I think, yeah, you have to try and make the best of what you can with using technology. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a grave mistake to think that um, learning through a computer is the same as learning in a, in a school environment. I mean, school, school is not just about academic qualifications and learning you know, your times tables. It's also about socialisation. It's an important place where you learn social skills as a child, which will benefit you in the workplace just as much as your formal qualifications, I think. A lot of, a lot of you know, how we kind of progress in the workplace is through social skills, through people skills, and you learn those in the first instance in, the, in a school environment. I think this idea that you can just um, substitute a human-to-human -human interaction with a computer screen, I think, is... Is a, is a huge mistake. And the idea of, that we should close schools for two days a week because of energy bills. I mean, when I went to school, I'm not saying this was the ideal. We, we, uh, we learned in kind of freezing cold porter cabins during the winter. Um, I'm not saying that was a good thing at all, but it was still better than having no school to go to at all. I mean, I think there's, there's no excuse for, for children not to be in schools uh, five days a week. I think there's even a case for lengthening out the school day to make up for the, the time lost during children lost during COVID. What would you uh, lengthen it to? I would just... I, I don't know what it is at the moment. I think they finish at 3, 3.30, right? I, I would lengthen it out to the, for the, work, the length of the working day, I think, Ooh. for example. What, you keep them there till, what, five, got, six? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would, that would uh, help parents out. And I think I do think the more time children spend in school, the, the better, really, to be honest. Mm. Do you have kids at home? Uh, if you've got kids, what do, you, uh, what do you think to that? Your kids going to school from, just say, nine to five, nine to six. Uh, what do you think your kids would think to that? I mean, you had my parents had half a, half a, um, a heck of a job trying to keep me into school till three o'clock, never mind, five, six. But, uh, Ali, where do you stand on it all? Well, I mean, who's going to be looking after the kids on the two days when they're not in school? I mean, presumably a lot of parents are trying to earn a cross to keep bread on the table at the moment with all the issues going on. I mean, this is uh, assuming that people are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs able to look after their kids at home. And by the way, you saw that during COVID, inequalities got further entrenched. Mm. Those who had access to uh, technology were in a much better position. Those who had access to parents that could oh, actually spend the time trying to coach their kids... Uh, with all the uh, issues and disruption going on, we're in a much better position. And even in normal times, by the way, and this is something that when I went to uh, the Michaela School on a visit run by Catherine Burblesing, who's now the social mobility czar, I remember when I went to her school, she said, you've got to stay for lunch. And I thought, 
I, I don't need to eat, it's fine. She goes, no, 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 you'll understand when you come. And what they do at lunchtime every day is they have a topic for the day that is led by one of the teachers, a moral dilemma or something that's happened in the news where all the kids in their table groups over lunch will discuss the issue and come to a conclusion. Uh, like someone, someone, um, an MP was speeding and didn't didn't confess to having points, etc., or should have got points and lied about whatever it whatever it may be. How old are these kids? These kids are just uh, six, fifty, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-old right. kids. Now, the thing, the reason why they do that is because not everyone in their household is going to have discussions like we're having, uh, Michelle, on your program around the dinner table, right? So, school to James's point, it's not just about. Uh, the maths and English and all the other core skills you learn. It is also learning about broader things that you may not have in your household. Your parents might not be so equipped to be focusing on what's happening in the news or world affairs, which you get in school. So I think it's really... We must only close schools ever as a last resort. They shouldn't have been closed in COVID to the extent they were. They should have been opened a lot sooner than they were. Robert Halfon, uh, head of the Education Select Committee, has talked about the detrimental effects that... Uh, absence uh, during COVID has had on kids. And I think, look, I think Anne Longfield here, uh, the, the former Children's Commissioner, talking about this issue uh, is absolutely right. This has got to be a last resort. And if we're not paying teachers enough, you've got to raise taxes back to my corporation tax point, back to my higher rate earner point in terms of you've got to, you've got to increase income tax if that's what you want to do. At the moment, we're going down to it. We're going to be probably having a prime minister, if the polls are right, who doesn't want to do any of these things. How are we going to square the circle? You want decent public services. Yes, there should be efficiencies, but you've got to fund them properly. And you've also got the ongoing issue about the energy costs, which we've already talked about. Yeah, I just, I worry, I guess, in society that, to me, it, it should always be about, you know, adults, you put your children first, yeah. you know, you prioritise the well-being of the child, and then, you know, certainly as a parent, I would feel like I come after that. But I do think something happened, something strange happened with COVID, where a lot of people almost wanted to use children as a shield. Um, I do feel that very strongly. I think, you know, I had lots of conversations with lots of adults during those kind of times. And I remember talking to lots of adults that were, I'm going to be very blunt about this, pretty obese, actually, which is a risk factor for COVID. And they used to sit there and try and tell me, oh, we need to get all of these children vaccinated to protect us adults. And I used to look at these adults and think, but you don't even protect yourself. You don't even lose the weight that you could lose to protect yourself against the risk of COVID, but yet you want to put these children in front of you and get them to protect you. I find it a very bizarre yeah, but, mindset. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but I think, Michelle, you're tapping into a much deeper issue here around personal Thank responsibility. Thank you. I like to be a deep thinker, Ali. You are. Thank you. Uh, it's an issue of personal responsibility mm -hmm. and the fact that we are becoming more and more infantile as time progresses because we expect the state to get us out of every problem we have. Now, during COVID... I think it was perfectly understandable that the government would do something bold and imaginative like the furlough scheme to people, keep people in jobs that would have been facing destitution and on the street in a, in a period where they wouldn't have been able to work. So that was right. But we also have to remember, look at the massive cost involved in it. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision. I support it. But we did have $400 billion of borrowing on the back of it. We cannot expect the state to solve every problem for us mm -hmm. and be our parent. Uh, effectively, you're looking, for a, looking at a paternalistic state to sort of nanny us in every aspect of our life. We need to take personal responsibility for ourselves. Yeah, I, I would just say that the, but those areas where we, we think the state should function, you know, in provision of schools, we yes. kind of both agree on that. I think you, you can't have expect European public services with American levels of taxation. You have to actually 
be realistic about how much it costs to run a school. And I don't think, one of the depressing things is I don't think the two leadership candidates of the Tory party, I, I think Rishi Sunak more, but he's the one who's, who's who ironically is likely to lose. I don't think Liz Truss, Truss is being realistic about um, the state of public services. Promising tax cuts at the moment, I just think is madness. But just think of, James, just think about the intray on uh, September the 6th when whoever wins comes in, right? What are they facing? They're facing inflation at 10%, heading towards 15 to 18%, so we read today. They're facing in, uh, interest rates that are going to go up, according to Liz Truss's own economic uh, supporter, Patrick Minford, to 5 to 7%, rates which we're, we're not used to, we haven't seen. We're seeing energy prices through the roof. We're seeing strike action writ large all over the place. I mean, this is like bringing back the 1970s, Britain's not working, right? At that time, the poster said Labour's not working. At the moment, the country feels like it's falling apart. And understandably, on the back of COVID, this is all working itself through. But we needed this invasion like a hole in the head. And we also are waking up from two years of slumber on the back of the global economy not functioning effectively, which is going to cause supply chain issues. So... Honestly, whoever gets it, good luck, because it's not going to be fun. I won't want it. I don't think there's a there's not not enough money in this world right now that could convince me to be prime minister. No, thank you. Um, Maxine says my daughter is ten, age ten, and she does seven forty-five to five thirty p.m. Uh, at the moment because I'm a single parent and I have to work full time. I have no choice. I think you make an important point there in terms of breakfast clubs and after-school clubs. Uh, someone else has been in touch saying we shouldn't extend the school days. Why would you want children uh, walking home at seven o'clock in the dark? Well, I would say uh, we're currently in summer. It's not dark at seven o'clock. You could do it now and then reevaluate. It, um, once it gets into much darker nights. So actually, it's a bit late now because they're on summer holidays, aren't they? But we could have done that sooner, to James's point, make up for some of the lost Daylight learning. Daylight saving adjustment yeah. is just an option. I mean, you don't have to change the clocks. Now, I don't even... I mean, that's a whole different debate. I don't know why we continue uh, with this whole kind of changing not, It'd be quite easy not to do that if we change the school day. Yeah, well, you tell me at home, do you support um, not changing the clocks? I, I think it's getting a little bit pointless these days. You tell me. Um, who's this here saying a point that I've just lost your name and I've just seen your comment. Oh, uh, yeah, Wayne says, I hated school in the 70s. I would have absolutely loved a three-day week. In fact, a one-day week would have made me so happy, says Wayne. I completely agree with you, Wayne. I would have been in that camp too. Uh, Jan says we're obviously paying teachers far too much if they can afford to drop from five days to three days pay. Not to mention what a selfish attitude. No, 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 Jan, I think you're missing the point there. They're not talking about dropping from a five-day wage to a three-day wage. No, 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 no. They're talking about keeping their five-day wage and doing a three-day week. Ah. Hmm. I won't even tell you what I think to that. Right, panel, thank you very much. My two-man panel, uh, we don't care what Argos says. Thank you. Thank you for your company at home. Up next, Nigel Farage. Good evening. What have you got for me, Nigel? Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.